Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you today, Monday, the 31st of October. This is Halloween for those of you who observe such things. And, uh, well, really, that should be all of us Catholics in a certain sense because it's the Eve of All Saints, All Hallows Eve. Tonight we will be celebrating here at the seminary at 6 p.m. with First Vespers of the Solemnity. And uh, I personally will be celebrating with some chocolate that I got for myself. Although <laughs> I'm justifying it to myself because I am prepared for the possibility of seminarian trick-or-treaters coming by my room. Now, I don't expect this to happen, but it's best to be prepared for all eventualities. And so, should, should any, perhaps of the younger seminarians, wish to come by seeking treats, at least they know that they will find a warm welcome. <laughs> It's been a uh, chaotic couple of weeks for me. You may have noticed a new episode did not go up last Monday. And uh, I'm just barely getting this one in and under the wire. I hope that I get it up uh, in time to meet the 6 p.m. Uh, deadline that I have set for myself <laughs> each week on Mondays. Um, it's almost 5 p.m. now, so I'm cutting it pretty close. But I'm going to keep this short and try to do a minimal amount of editing in order to get it up before 6 when it should be released and also because I have to go to Vespers at 6 as previously mentioned. Uh, we are in the thick right now of comprehensive exam preparations and that is partly to blame for the uh, chaotic nature of the last couple of weeks and the relative lack of time that I've found to re record the podcast. Um, you know, it's a nice service that the seminary is providing for us uh, in that uh, each of the faculty members whom we have had, well, some of them, so some of the faculty that we've had are no longer here, so that's kind of a problem, but um, the ideal way that this, this would work is that all of the faculty members who have taught us over the last four years come back to present a kind of a summary of their course. And in, and in fact, the faculty prepare certain questions with which to assess us on the comprehensive exams. And they give us a study guide, and then they actually come and teach us these review sessions, covering again the material that they previously taught us. So they write the exam questions, and then they give us the prep session in order to make sure that we are adequately prepared to answer those questions in the exam. So we've been having these prep sessions uh, two or three per week the last couple of weeks now, um, covering all the subjects that we've learned in dogmatics, in moral theology, in sacred scripture, etc., etc. And as I say, it's, it's very helpful, um, but it does take up a lot of our time. <laughs> we're hoping to have the comprehensives in January or February, so that is kind of right around the corner. So we're... We're doubling down. This week, for example, we have about six hours of exam prep. That's on top of all the classes that we already have and our, our other obligations. So our free time is very limited. Uh, every day this week for me, uh, other than today, I, I did have just a little bit of free time to try to record this in. Other than that, every day this week is packed from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. Um, so please do pray for me and my, my deacon classmates as we, uh, as we uh, well, we're not exactly cramming, but <laughs> we are 
strenuously preparing for the exams to come at the beginning of the next semester. For these exams, I think I might have mentioned in previous years, uh, we actually have some outside professors who come. Uh, we are accredited, of, of course, to offer all the American degrees that we offer, but the Roman pontifical degree that we offer, the Baccalaureate of Sacred Theology, is offered in conjunction with the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. And so in order to uh, examine us for that degree, a Dominican flies in from D.C. and he sits on the uh, examination board. It used to be several Dominicans, uh, and they would descend like a flock of crows <laughs> in their black capes, uh, causing consternation and fear. You know, deacons tremble at the approach of the Dominicans. This year, they say it's just one, um, and I'm sure he'll be very, very good to us. So we are preparing for those exams right now. Uh, also, Archbishop Sample was here this last week to visit us, along with Father Peter Julia, our new vocations director. We had a lovely visit with them, had time for individual meetings. We all went out for dinner together. And the main purpose of the visit uh, was the installation of lectors and acolytes. Uh, so Archbishop Sample was the celebrant for that Mass. Two of our Portland Sems were instituted as acolytes. So it was a joyful occasion and so encouraging, so encouraging to have some time with Archbishop, our, our father, our spiritual father and our shepherd. Um, and I think it was fun for him too, to spend a little time with us. So that was a highlight of last week. Uh, yesterday in the parish, I was teaching confirmation again along with my seminarian brother, Jesus. Uh, we had a, a good class which was interrupted, however, by, a, uh, <laughs> by an All Saints Day pageant, which the younger Faith Formation students put on, and it was very charming. They all dressed up as saints and gave a little bio about their chosen saints. Then there were activities. I think pin the halo on the saint, I think, was a, a featured activity. And there were cupcakes, of course, which was a, uh, a delight for all. Uh, <laughs> so we had fun at the parish yesterday. My favorite among the saints was St. Augustine. The little boy who dressed as him said, My name is St. Augustine, or St. Augustine actually, also known as St. Augustine of Hippo. And one fun fact about me is I'm still alive today. <laughs> he proclaimed it with such confidence. I'm still alive today. So we had to affirm him in that, you know, yeah, you're right. In the, in the, in the kingdom of heaven, right? <laughs> He's alive. Well, just like all the saints. So uh, we got to use that, the All Saints Day festivities, a little bit in our lesson, uh, which was primarily on the four marks of the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic, to talk about the church in heaven, the church triumphant, and also the church in purgatory, the church suffering. We ask the saints in heaven to pray for us because they already have made it. And then we ask this, then we, uh, we, we, we in turn pray for the church in purgatory because they are being intensely purified and prepared to enter into heaven. Like we right now are being intensely purified and prepared for our comprehensive exams. <laughs> we didn't say that to the kids on Sunday. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I think our, our, our class went well. I got to see Jesus teach for the first time. Uh, and uh, we have very different styles, but I think quite complementary, which is good. And he shared a bit about his vocation story. Um, 
So it was great. And our, our challenge for the students for the week was to um, pray about and write in their class journal um, where they see themselves fitting into the body of Christ. So a lot of the lesson also teaching about the church was on the church as the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we are the body. Um, so to see how they fit in and to pray about that. So I'll be curious to see what their responses are. They're a good group. Um, it, it does seem like the majority of what we are teaching is new to them as if they've heard it for the first time. I don't know if that's because maybe they have heard some of this before but they weren't really listening or they forgot or maybe they really haven't been taught maybe even some of the sort of things that Jesus and I would take for granted is very basic basic elements of catechesis um, they do seem new to them so we are we're having to go slowly and uh, match our expectations to the reality of where these students are which is fine um, but yeah, we, we're limited in how much we can, we can do. Not only by the time, we only have an hour once every two weeks, but also by the uh, apparent, you know, relative lack of prior preparation um, of the students, which is no fault of their own. So our next time teaching them will be in three weeks. We're supposed to give an Advent lesson, and we're hoping to also um, uh, have some time for Q&A, like an open forum, so now they've gotten to know Jesus and I a little bit through our sharing our stories. Um, we want to just give them an open forum to ask some questions if they, if they have any. I expect they might. Um, and then try to cover a little bit more of, of what we couldn't quite get in this time about the church and the holiness of the church, the vocation to holiness, etc. So um, I think it's going well. Please keep them in your prayers, these 14 students who will, pray God, all be confirmed uh, this coming spring. I don't know if there's a date set yet or not, but um, sometime, sometime in the spring at Mater de la Rosa Parish, and I hope I will be able to serve there as deacon for that confirmation mass. That would really be a delight. Um, what else? Also, <laughs> this is quite a mystery. Yesterday I got back to my room at the seminary after a full day at the parish. Jesus and I were there for something like 11 hours. We leave here before the dawn, before 6 a.m. And we got back around 5 p.m., so 11 hours more or less. So I was exhausted, went to my room, I opened the door and I hear this, this frantic fluttering, like flap, 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 flap. I'm like, what is that? And I saw this dark shape. I thought, at first I thought it was a bat. And then I learned as I turned on the light, it was a bird <laughs> trapped inside my room. And how this happened is, is a complete and utter mystery to me because the door was closed and the window, the one window was also closed and it has a screen on it. So how this bird came to be in my room, I have no idea. I suspect either spontaneous generation <laughs> or somebody's playing a, a, uh, a very cruel prank on me. <laughs> but anyway, this bird was in there and trying to get out, the poor thing, and he was he just going crazy, fl flapping, fluttering, trying to get you know through the window, and then he he went over into a corner and got stuck behind my dresser and was flying all around. And finally, he made his way out, and uh, leaving quite a substantial mess for me to clean up, by the way. And then uh, 
So I followed him and he went up to this third floor window, too high up for anyone to possibly reach him. And that window also was shut, but he repeatedly was just throwing himself against it, trying to get out into the light. The poor thing, I think he probably lost his few remaining brain cells there <laughs> through <laughs> the drama of trying to break through the glass. And uh, nothing that I or any of my brothers could do could, could dissuade him from his attempts. He was, he was certain that was the way out, and he was going to keep trying it until eventually he succeeded. Well, <laughs> that, that, that kept up for hours um, until eventually some of the pre-theologians came, and uh, by dint of making enormous noise, they managed to scare him enough to chase him into an open window, and then he, he left <laughs> back into the open air. So that was my excitement last night, and uh, led to several hours of me uh, deep cleaning my room. So uh, the mysteries of, of St. Patrick's Seminary. Seminarian also recently found an owl in the library, uh, and that's not a joke about <laughs> a certain uh, Twitter account that I follow. Uh, owl at the library. No, we literally had an owl at the library, and. <laughs> One of our guys, I don't, I don't know exactly where he found it, but he picked this owl up and took it outside. Mm, so birds do, and squirrels sometimes come inside too. We've had, we've had rogue squirrels in the building, but this is the first time that I have encountered a bird in my room where I live. Hopefully the last time as well. <laughs> All right. So speaking of owls at the library, how's this for a segue? Speaking of owls at the library, <laughs> let us uh, now go over to the library of this podcast, where we shall discuss Charles Dickens. I'm excited to be joined again by Rachel, who was featured here some weeks ago, and another special surprise guest. So without further ado, let's go and meet them. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. God bless us, everyone. What the Dickens? Well, this week, I'm pleased to welcome Rachel back again to our Dickens segment here on In Your Embrace. I believe she needs no introduction after our previous conversations on the Pickwick Papers. And we're very pleased also to welcome a special guest, Bose Harrington, co-founder of the Dickens Chronological Reading Club. Bose is a writer and novelist living in South Texas. He runs a popular Twitter account. He's at Sketches by Bose, B-O-Z-E, where he tweets about books and faith. A lifelong Dickens lover. His favorite novel is David Copperfield. Bose, welcome to the podcast. Hello. We're uh, excited to talk a little bit, I think, today about Oliver Twist. But first, since I have the two co-founders of the DCRC here today with us, I thought I would just ask you both, how do you think it's going? I think it's going well so far. Um, we're right now, uh, we've just started Barnaby Reg. We're in week three of Barnaby. Probably it's Dickens' most underappreciated novel. And I think everyone is surprised at how much we actually are appreciating it and loving it. I think uh, we're getting so many wonderful insights that I would say it, it's going really well. We're about to do our first um, online chat tomorrow, actually. 
Yeah, Rach messaged me in, I think, November or December and said, I'm contemplating starting a chronological Dickens reading club. And uh, I really saw that she and I would be the only ones doing it because <laughs> we're, we're not in the 19th century. But it's been really <laughs> encouraging to see just how many people are participating and how many people love Dickens, not just casually enjoy like reading A Christmas Carol, but actually really enjoyed digging into and engaging with the novels. I mean, he remains our greatest storyteller. And mm. uh, more and more people have been joining as as we have gotten into some of the, the middle books. And these aren't even Dickens' most beloved novels, like Barnaby Rudge and The Old Curiosity Shop or Half Forgotten Unjustly, I would add. But people are really liking them. It was so funny because I found out last week that a friend of mine is starting her own chronological Dickens reading club wow. that's going for two and a half years. And she was not aware of our two and a half year <laughs> chronological <laughs> Dickens reading club. So there's just, everything's coming up Dickens. Hmm. That's a remarkable coincidence. You know, I, I told Rachel, I was also starting a reduced version of, of reading Dickens, planning to read just uh, about six or seven novels over the course of this year. And uh, was so excited to find like-minded people who had already started this chronological reading club. So I joined a bit late, but I will say it's been such a joy. I haven't been participating too much in the online discussions. Um, I just haven't had the mental bandwidth or the time to compose the kind of responses that I'd like to give. But I do read all the comments and the weekly wrap-ups, especially that you and Rachel have been writing. And uh, I saw someone comment recently that your blog, reninkpaper.com, where all this is being posted, is becoming kind of an invaluable resource for future readers of Dickens. I mean, this is the kind of thing other people who are maybe reading something like Oliver Twist for the first time will go and, and Google Oliver Twist, and maybe they'll come upon these wrap-ups, these summaries, these great conversations drawing out all these themes of these novels. It's really a, a tremendous work of kind of collaborative scholarship. It really is surprising. That was so sweet. That was the Dickens Society, I think, that tweeted that. And it was really so encouraging. And I think that's just the, the depth of insight of the members, especially kind of our core company of commenters, mm -hmm. my old teacher, Lenny, who I blame for my Zicken <laughs> infatuation now, and of course, Bose's introductions, which are so marvelous. I think it's so many people interested and invested in, in giving it a go, especially his lesser known works that we're reading right now. It really is bringing a whole other level of insight into Dickens' work. Had I been reading alone or had Bose and I been reading alone, I think it just would have been, it would have been different. It would have been a joy, but it, mm -hmm. it brings something else to the table. I hadn't thought about that, but now I'm thinking from the perspective of a hypothetical future reader, say a 17-year-old in high school, who is uh, wanting to dig into Dickens, and they stumble on our blog, and they find these intros that are very enthusiastic about getting you to read the book, and then they find Rach's marvelous summary posts that explain what's happening in each chapter, and that have the readers who are discussing the, the themes and uh, Dickens' intention behind uh, his narrative and uh, 
how useful that would be. I've been looking up resources online for Barnaby Raj, and there actually aren't oh. that many. I think by the time we finish reading and discussing Barnaby Raj, we might have the, the most Barnaby Raj information of anywhere here. Because <laughs> there are almost no summaries. And uh, so as, as more people discover it, it's going to, like you said, become an invaluable resource. Yeah. Bose, I just want to ask, um, in your introduction to Barnaby Rudge, which is the work we're reading currently as we're recording this podcast, you had a great analogy about uh, if the works of Dickens were like a great city, like the city of London. Uh, so for those maybe who haven't read that, could you just recapitulate that summary for us? I thought it was so excellent. And then where would you place Oliver Twist in the city of Dickens? Yeah, the city of Dickens. I like to think of the Dickens canon as kind of a theme park or a city or a combination theme park and city. And so like you're traveling through the center of town, like the hub, the, the still point of the turning world is T.S. Eliot at your Piccadilly Circus. And that's, that's kind of the the central books in the canon, the books that we always go back to, the books that we're taught in school, Great Expectations, Tale of Two Cities, Christmas Carol. And then, then you travel a bit further out and you're like in Westminster or Houses of Parliament. And you've got the books that kind of should be more towards the center of the canon, but they're not as talked about as much. But they're still essential Dickens reading, like Our Mutual Friend, Bleak House and David Copperfield, my personal favorite novel ever. And then you you start getting more into the outer boroughs like Richmond or Greenwich, which are absolutely lovely, gorgeous places to visit, but uh, they're they're not as central to the metropolis. And that's your Barnaby Rudge or your Nicholas Nickleby. And I'd say Oliver Twist is probably in that second tier, in the, the David Copperfield Bleak House tier, just because I don't know if it's one of his best novels, but it is one of his most pivotal novels. It was his mm. first dramatic book, and uh, it was the book that kind of inaugurated children's fiction, young adult fiction. It's the book that every book with a child protagonist still borrows from. It was the first book in literature to have a child protagonist. And so you look at something like Harry Potter or His Dark Materials, those books are unimaginable without Oliver Twist. And, and Philip Pullman himself says this. He wrote an excellent introduction to uh, Oliver Twist for, I think, Penguin in 2002. And uh, the trope of a child who is abused, who is poor and beleaguered and oppressed and then the trope of a child who is on the run for their life because someone is trying to murder them or hurt them in some way and they have a found family that they cling to and that family becomes their new family and replaces their abusive old family it's 19th century Harry Potter. It's so classic. And all J.K. Rowling really did was take that story and add a bit of magic to it. And that was why those books became mega bestsellers is because she was rewriting Oliver Twist with a bit of David Copperfield thrown in. Yeah, Bose, that's such a great point. One way we could conceive, I think, of, of the plot of Oliver Twist 
is this story of the lost boy who becomes found. And there's this progression of quote unquote found families that Oliver is passing through throughout the course of the novel. From the very beginning, you know, he loses his mother, he's taken in by the parish, and then they're eager to hand him off from the workhouse to the sour berries and runs away. And of course, there's this found family the first he enters into in London, this criminal family headed up by Fagin. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately he ends up after passing through with the Brownlows and so on into the family of the Maylies, where for the first time, really, he encounters a loving, supportive Christian family. I'd like to hear just your thoughts about this trope, uh, lost and found, the found family, abandonment leading into belonging. Um, I don't know if you know the history of, of English literature, probably much more than I do. Is Oliver Twist the first time that we really encounter this plot? I think you see it in embryonic form in the history of Tom Jones, A Foundling, which was one of Dickens' chief inspirations as a novelist throughout his career. It's uh, about... Uh, a man, a young man who goes on this sort of mock epic journey. Um, it's structured like an old myth, but it's realistic. And he doesn't have a family. And then there are all these revelations about his lineage that transpire. Mm -hmm. And he, he realizes, oh, I, I belong to this family. I have this, this fortune that is due to me. And so Dickens takes that and he kind of perfects it. And he makes it to the template for everyone writing this kind of story going forward. So I, I think it, it was a, a trope that was still being developed and Dickens being a master architect developed mm. it to perfection. Mm. I seem to remember in German literature, there is this category of the Bildungsroman, the growing up romance or, or story. And you mentioned Harry Potter. And I know sometimes they say like some, these, these young adult stories of which Harry Potter is a great example, are, are English buildings, Romans, uh, the stories of growing up and, as you say, finding a, a community and identifying who you are. And Oliver Twist, if not the very, very first, is certainly archetypal in this genre mm -hmm. in our, our English history. So I'll, I'll open it up to you, Rachel. Any thoughts you have about these themes throughout Oliver Twist? Abandonment, belonging, progression, finding a, a true family at last? Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot, trying to just, uh, tr literally trying to outline all the time in which Oliver walked and then found again, for better and worse, you know, found by the wrong people. The false found family would be like Sagan and his gang. They give him probably the first sense of kindness and welcome that Oliver has had up to the novel at this point, because he's been, you know, essentially raised by quote unquote the parish, they don't have any sense of a personal relationship to Oliver's. I think this is something that becomes also a, a recurring theme in Dickens too, the, the found family, you know, people treating each person as though they are actually a member of their own family. And Dickens, as it happens, it does turn out sometimes that they actually are connected in some way. Like, you know, spoiler alert, I mean, Oliver finds out that he is the nephew of Rose Maley, or, um, you know, that Mr. Brownlow is the friend of Mr. Leeford. So um, it does turn out in Dickens, providentially, I would say, rather than by chance, that people do actually, they are connected to each other more than, more than in sync. 
Mm. But I think the point is that we treat everyone as though they actually are part of our family. I mean, we see that with Nicholas and Smike. We see that with Oliver and the Maylis and Brownlow. And I think this becomes a recurring theme in Dick. It strikes me that the virtue of hospitality is very evident in this story. And that leads into the possibility of Oliver being welcomed into these, again, found families. It's interesting you point out the first time he encounters a kind of a, a welcome is with Fagin's gang in London yeah. and even meeting the artful Dodger, right? As he's making his way to London, escaping, uh, he meets the artful Dodger, this other young boy who promises to introduce him into a kind of a community in London. It ends up really being more of a curse than a blessing for young Oliver, but he does encounter a kind of a welcome and a, a, a certain hospitality. So how do we distinguish maybe this two-edged sword of hospitality. On the one hand, Oliver's welcomed into this gang of Fagans, but they intend to put him to ill use. Whereas later on, he experiences a kind of a real loving welcome, first with Mr. Brownlow and then with the Maylies. Well, I think one thing certainly is the end to which the welcome is directed, for, certainly for Fagan and his gang. I mean, they intend to make use of Oliver as a pickpocket, as a thief, we find out later that Fagin is approached by monks who intends to pay Fagin a good deal of money to turn him into a thief. You know, it's kind of the old love versus use thing. I mean, that the, the opposite of love isn't really hatred, it's maybe use. And Oliver is continually being used by everyone from this man who is taking the, the money that should be used for his food and upkeep for herself to Fagin and his gang who will tend to use him because his innocent face is going to be not respected by others yeah. and he's going to make a fabulous pickpocket. Then we have the Maylies and Brownlow, on the other hand, who just care for him for his own sake. And I think that's really the difference between the two forms of hospitality is the love for his own sake or what can he bring to others or people's own ends. What I find really interesting about that is that I think Oliver Twist has this kind of reputation for painting tones of uh, good and evil, black and white. And there's some truth to that, but reading the book, I don't find it being that simple. I find that he, he complicates things and uh, he doesn't portray the community of Fagin as being entirely negative in itself. It's presented more as a stepping stone to the sort of community that he will go on to have. Because um, I would argue that the only truly despicable character in the novel is Bill Sykes, and even he's rendered somewhat sympathetically at times. Fagin isn't rendered as evil so much as weak and greedy and overruled by others. And the artful dodger is a kid in a bad situation. Nancy is a matronly woman, a very young woman with motherly instincts who doesn't know how to get out of an abusive situation. So, and it's fraught with complications. I th think what Dickens is saying with that is that Oliver's desire to be in community in the ways expressed in this community is not bad in itself, but that it becomes bad to the extent that he is exploited. And when he finds himself being exploited, and as Rage said, mishandled, misused, then he has to leave that community for his own good. 
Yeah. Nancy is certainly one of the great complicated characters, and she's been somewhat unjustly denigrated by some critics. You know, Dickens was so proud of, of Nancy, and he had met many Nancys during his life and um, tried to aid them. And there's such a powerful foil between her and Rose Maley that either could have ended up very much like the other, depending on the force of circumstances around them. But they both obviously are are at heart just such good people. And we see the, I think Lenny and Chris brought this out in our discussions that the mama lion comes out in, in Nancy. In regard to Oliver, there's something about Oliver that just brings out the maternal instinct in these two women. And Nancy does the best she can in her circumstances and is, is changed by that, but can't entirely get out of it herself. She tries to save Oliver. So yeah, there's so much gray, so many complicated characters and even Bill Sykes, those were saying, shows an unexpectedly different side to him as he's being pursued at the end, which is really interesting and even has a heroic moment trying to save people from the, the burning building towards the end, which is just something out of, out of nowhere. Yeah. For me, uh, Nancy is the great tragic heroine of, of Oliver Twist. Mm. Um, yeah. Her, her arc is even more touching for me than that of Oliver. And I think it's really striking, as, as you say, Bose, this community of Fagin's gang. Yeah, it's not all bad. I'm just thinking of this distinction from philosophy, from Aristotle. Evil has no being. You know, evil is just the privation of the good. Uh, human community is, is a good, but it's perverted insofar as it's as you say, used to exploit those who belong to it by those who have more power to exploit the weaker. And poor Nancy, I mean, for her, this, this is the only maybe community, the only family she's ever known. She really is motivated by this love for Sykes. And Sykes is constantly exploiting her, making use of her, and ultimately murders her, all in service of his own ends. Mm. I think that Dickens gets a bad rap when it comes to the, the female characters, particularly in his early books, because he has kind of a reputation for writing, as George Orwell said, legless angels, mm. <laughs> women who are either um, virtuous, angelic characters or, or who are the opposite of that. I, I think there's some truth in that in some of his better-known characters in the early books, like Little Nell. Um, but then you've got a character like Nancy, and she's so vivid, she almost feels like a real person that you've met. And uh, she completely skewers that good-evil binary that mm -hmm. Dickens is supposed to have adhered to so rigorously. Mm -hmm. We talked about this a bit in the club, too. Part of some critique that I read of Nancy was that she's like a heroine in a stage melodrama, tearing her hair and all this kind of thing. And, you know, really, I mean, here's a woman who's been traumatized from the get-go, who's going through a spiritual crisis, who is constantly threatened. Of course, she's going to, she's going to act out. She's going to, like in the scene where she's trying to communicate to Oliver after he's retaken, just to kind of go with the flow, do what Sykes says, just, you know, to survive kind of thing. And, and she's showing you know, the conflict in herself. And I think to me, that's very realistic. Like the way Nancy's portrayed there, I, I, would, be, <laughs> I would be tearing my hair out. And I think Nancy is, is absolutely realistic 
teenager who's traumatized and threatened. Towards the conclusion of Oliver Twist, of course, we get Mr. Brownlow teaming up with the Maylies. And it's kind of these two true found families that have adopted Oliver coming together now to uh, oppose the false found family, as you say, Rachel, to oppose Fagin's gang um, and monks, the kind of mastermind behind the scenes. It, it really, it does seem to be painted in, in the colors of the Dickensian contrast we talked about on the last episode um, as this kind of battle of the forces of, of good, of love against Fagin's gang, you know, this much more shadowy, complicated, but ultimately exploitative community. One thing that just strikes me here, and I'd be interested to hear either of your, your thoughts on this, is Oliver Twist really, uh, is this a novel for our times? I'm thinking of right now in the modern, really postmodern West, the collapse of the family. There are so many who find themselves to be really without community, feeling like isolated, like strangers in the crowd. Um, I just saw a study released this week that the, the numbers of Americans who report having even one close friend keep precipitously dropping. It's like something less than 40% now amongst my generation. So is there something there to speak to our generation in the 21st century West? I think a lot of this comes from Dickens' own life, his sense of being essentially abandoned by his parents to some degree when he was working the blacking factory and his father was in prison for debt. But I think it speaks to us in a different way now that we are pretty isolated from one another. And I think we are all longing for that, the sense of community, the sense of being treated as, you know, as one of your own. And, and I think, I do think that Oliver in that way is so relevant to today. And I, but I think it also is something that runs through Dickens perhaps more and more as time goes on. The sense of being welcomed into a community of people, even if you're not related to them. Mm. And as it turns out, sometimes you are, you don't realize. <laughs> but it, I think the sense of finding others of, of like minds and who care for you for your own sake, I think that's something that we're all looking for and it's maybe harder and harder to find nowadays. I'm thinking again of the secret history. It's uh, about um, a young man who goes off to college and finds himself in a a weird cultish community of fellow classics majors who have mm. bacchanals in the woods and uh, um, almost a beat for beat updating of Oliver Twist, but on a Vermont college campus. I think that book the Secret History, published in 1991, resonated with so many people because it took the the themes of Oliver Twist and gave them a modern gloss, and because that story is still so relevant, because when people, especially young people, don't have family or don't have community, they tend to get drawn into these Fagin-like yes. families. And uh, so that, that's going to become an increasing problem, I think, is keeping young people from getting exploited by con artists and charismatic leaders and demagogues because there is so little community. And Dickens speaks to that. And one thing that I love about our Dickens Club is that it's kind of trying to build a healthy community around something worthwhile, something that matters, which is the novels of Charles Dickens. 
I was just thinking of the same thing, Bose, as you were speaking. So thanks to you both for creating this uh, little found family and a space for community around something truly good and, and worthwhile. We'll be excited to have you both on again next week to continue our conversation about Oliver Twist. Um, any final thoughts now before we wrap up? No final thoughts. I just want everyone to read and enjoy the wonders of Dickens. I know that a lot of people think that he's a boring author, but he's the furthest thing from boring. He's so entertaining and rich. And if you just dig into him, especially if you read him in community, like we've been doing, you it changes, it transforms your whole life. Yeah, I think Dickens has basically had an impact on every way that we're viewing the world now. <laughs> I think speaking at least for Bose and I, he seems to cast a certain glow <laughs> on everything. And, um, and certainly I think will influence any creative work we do in the future. But yes, read Dickens. <laughs> read Oliver Twist too. It's not not my favorite of Dickens' novels, but it is an absolute gem and it's so influential in novels ever since that i think it's it's worth uh taking a deep dive into wonderful agreed well thank you both <laughs> so much again and uh we'll see you here again next week <laughs> I have no need to climb to the height of the great saints, but I just have to be myself, a little child. In these words of scripture, I found at last my little way to become a saint. Well, for some weeks now, we have been discussing Carmelite spirituality, primarily looking at the images of the mountain, the ascent of Mount Carmel, going up the mountain to meet God, like the prophet Elijah. We've talked about uh, the image of going to the mouth of the cave and waiting, waiting in holy expectation, being still before the oncoming of God and listening for that still small voice. Also the lovely image of St. Therese, of a, a little soul, and today we, we heard in the, uh, the responsorial psalm at Mass, uh, I have quieted my soul like a weaned child in its mother's arms, so my soul is quiet and waiting for the Lord. And St. Therese also has this image of being like that little child, uh, simply standing at the bottom of the stairs in holy expectation, confident that her father will come and lift her up to the heights. So these different ways of talking about going up, going up to meet God, there's an element of Difficulty, yes, it's an element of effort that's required, but also without uh, ever forgetting that the primary initiative is God's. God comes to us to lift us up to himself. Now today I'd like to introduce another concept, another key concept and a very essential image for Carmelite spirituality. This comes from St. John of the Cross and it is the image of the night. St. John has a beautiful poem uh, I've referenced before, I'm sure, on the podcast. I don't know when, but I'm sure it's come up. The dark night, la noche oscura, the dark night of the soul, which, by the way, is um, not an uncommon expression heard in Catholic circles, the dark night of the soul. Um, 
sometimes used a little imprecisely, sometimes used with a kind of a wider scope than St. John himself might have intended. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in this and future episodes, just what is meant by the dark night of the soul. First of all, we can consider um, just a little bit of the natural meaning of night. When night falls, everything changes in a certain sense. Our perception is dimmed. What we're able to see is vastly more limited than during the daytime. Uh, And yet there is light in the night, but that light principally comes from above, the light of the moon. One of the Psalms says, uh, you made the moon to shine in the night and the sun to shine by day. These two lights that God has made, the sun and the moon, uh, quite different in the quality of light that they give, however. In the day, everything is seen more or less clearly. In the night, everything is seen, uh, as St. Paul says, like through a glass darkly. (laughs) Everything is seen dimly. Uh, Details are obscured. It's easy to become lost if you're walking by night. Um, It's easy to lose your way, especially if you're going through difficult terrain without many landmarks to guide you. St. John's insight, in part, is that the ascent of Mount Carmel, the journey of the soul to meet God, takes place to a substantial degree by night. It is a journey by nighttime, a journey in the dark. And so his beautiful poem, The Dark Night of the Soul, in one translation begins as follows. One dark night. Fired with love's urgent longings. Ah, the sheer grace. I went out unseen. My house being now all stilled. So here we see there's a beginning uh, of the other elements of Carmelite prayer and the spiritual life we've already talked about. There's a going out. The house is stilled. That is like Elijah waiting at the mouth of the cave. There's a stillness, a holy expectation, a waiting upon God. Going out corresponds to the beginning of the journey. And yet it takes place by night. And as the second stanza says, In darkness and secure, in darkness and concealment, the soul goes forth upon this journey of ascent to meet God at the summit of the mountain. Now, there is a light that burns in the nighttime, and and the light that St. John refers to in the night of faith is, well, I gave it away just then by (laughs) calling it the night of faith. The light is faith. Faith, the light that burns in the night. The third stanza of the poem, On that glad night, in secret, for no one saw me, nor did I look at anything with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart. This guided me more surely than the light of noon to where he was awaiting me, him I knew so well, there in a place where no one else appeared. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with the loved, transforming the beloved in her lover. That stanza is incidentally a little bit more beautiful in the Spanish. I think the, the rhymes are, uh, are much better. But anyway, 
we can see here another translation calls this a lover's quest, right? Going out by night to meet the beloved. This, this has uh, certainly a, a romantic ring to it. You think of, uh, you know, a young man going out in the night to meet his girlfriend somewhere like by the light of moon. This is a, this is a very romantic kind of a scene that St. John is painting. But what this is referring to is the mystical encounter of the soul with its God. That it takes place under cover of night means a myriad of things. We will discuss this more in future episodes, and I, I hope to discuss it as well. I'm in conversation with some friends, not just by my own um, exposition. But we can consider what is our experience like of night, interior night, spiritual night. As night follows day in the natural world, so darkness follows light in the spiritual life. St. Ignatius is quite aware of this. He advises in his rules for the discernment of spirits that spiritual directors be aware there's a kind of a cyclical nature <laughs> to the interior life of most souls. There's periods of consolation, periods of desolation. There's times of great joy, peace, delight. God feels close. And then there will come a time when God seems absent and everything seems confusing. Um, there's a lack of peace. Uh, God's absence is keenly felt, perceived by the soul, and that plunges the soul into sometimes something akin to despair. These are natural movements of the soul. It's better to say these are, this is a natural part of the spiritual life. Um, and it can come from a variety of causes. Desolation can come you know, because of our sin, the effects of sin, or the sin that others perpetrate upon us. It can come because of a kind of spiritual warfare. The enemy who attacks us um, tries to always is trying to plunge us into despair and convince us that God doesn't love us, he's far from us. Um, so these kinds of things happen. But that desolation, that darkness is not principally what John of the Cross is talking about. When the soul is in desolation, our job really is to get out, <laughs> to get back to consolation. That's the great practical wisdom of St. Ignatius in his discernment of spirits. You know, we discern what spirit is active. And if the evil spirit is active upon us, which we can, he gives many rules to discern it, but principally we can say there's a lack of peace. The soul is restless, disquieted. Um, the spirit of God to a soul that's seeking God feels like, it just feels right. There's a peace that comes. The soul feels... Um, at rest in the presence of the Spirit of God. There's a, a kind of a warmth, there's a feeling of rightness, like water sinking into the earth. Whereas with the evil spirit, there's discordance, there's disunity, there's disharmony, all of that. It feels wrong, it feels jarring. So when we are feeling desolation, we need to get back to consolation. The dark night is, is, is a little bit different. The dark night St. John is talking about this, this blessed night, which unites the lover with the beloved. The dark night is actually willed by God. And it's, it's a part of the maturation of the soul. It's a stage of the spiritual life by which we mature from the beginnings of faith to a more solid um, adult or we might say almost warrior-like strength of faith. And this process entails suffering 
even the apparent absence of God. Now the paradox of the night is that that which unites us to God even more closely feels like he is far away. In the darkness of the night, it seems that God is absent when in fact he's uniting himself to the soul more deeply, more closely. In the darkness of the night, the soul, the soul discerns that there is a kind of a, a peace. There's a real peace, a deep down peace. And so it's not the same as depression. It's not the same as desolation. There is a peace, but the consolations that it has known up to this point in the presence of God are stripped away. Very often, uh, a sign of the oncoming of the night in a proficient in the spiritual life is something like this. Someone's been accustomed to, to praying in a certain way, whatever that might be, the vocal prayers, meditation on scriptures, meditating on the Holy Rosary, um, whatever it is. And the person is used to feeling certain consolations in prayer, feeling the presence of God, feeling the warmth of his love, um, coming away from prayer, feeling restored, feeling uplifted, feeling joyful, delighted. And then all of a sudden that changes. They continue to pray and, and again, there is, that, there is that perduring peace that's essential. There is that perduring peace deep down. But the constellations that were there before are gone. There's no longer that sort of sensible joy. There's no longer that delight. There's no longer the feeling of being uplifted, of being close to God, of being strangely warmed. All of that is gone. And the soul it continues to desire to pray. This is another sign it's not desolation. The enemy wants to take us away from God. This soul still wants to pray. So this is not the kind of darkness that, that actually draws us away from God. Actually, the soul longs even more to be closer to God, but it feels like God's nowhere to be found. And so there's a movement... <laughs> Siri just turned on for some reason. Siri's looking for God as well. <laughs> so uh, there's a movement actually towards deeper stillness towards deeper quiet. The soul longs to go out and be alone with God, to be alone with the alone. And ultimately this dark night, which strips away the familiar consolations, effects a purification of faith. Our faith, in order to be mature, cannot depend upon the good things that God gives us. Our faith has to be in God for his own sake alone. And that entails a kind of a painful stripping away of the consolations that we've come to love and delight in in order to be united to God even more deeply. Faith as one of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, faith unites the soul to God. It's the first of the theological virtues from our perspective, uh, because we need faith in order to have hope and in order to love. Love ultimately is what unites the soul to God perfectly. And faith and hope will pass away, but love will never pass away. But in order to love God, we first need to have faith. And in order to have faith that really begins the union of the soul with God, it can't just be a faith which is founded upon the good gifts God gives the soul. That kind of faith is immature. That kind of faith is fragile. That kind of faith will be shaken and fall away. 
in, in, in the, the trials that must come in this life. And so the dark night is actually a merciful gift of our all good and loving Father in order to make our faith more steady, more strong, more secure, more mature, more capable of withstanding whatever trials may come on the heroic journey which we are undertaking from now until we arrive in heavenly beatitude and we're united to him forever and ever in the kingdom to come. Now, St. John does distinguish uh, some different stages, different degrees of this dark night. So next week on the podcast, uh, God willing, <laughs> I'm going to discuss with a little bit more uh, finesse and detail these different stages and degrees of the dark night. But until then, I think, dear friends, we will leave it at that so I can try to get this posted in time for the 6 p.m. deadline. So I hope I will speak to you again next week. Until then, wherever you may find yourselves in the journey of the soul to be with God, I pray the Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.